Welcome to those who are watching online or listening to the podcast as well. Um, great to have you with us and uh, I'll give you this microphone, Martin, and uh, Martin is going to read for us from the end of Mark chapter 3. Okay, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35. One day, Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with a, an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? He asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, your mother and brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked around him and said, look, these are my brother, mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. The, uh, I find that the joy of studying and meditating on um, a single book of the Bible from start to finish is that we get to immerse ourselves more fully into the whole life of Jesus and everything that he was about rather than maybe just the, the bits we're more familiar with. The struggle, on the other hand, is that we can't skip over the bits that uh, are a bit difficult to understand or a bit more jarring or maybe don't fit with our view of God. And I think that the passage we just read is, in my opinion, one that would be easy to skip over. <laughs> uh, I, I was hoping that there'd, there'd be a nice, easy, feel-good passage to preach on this Sunday, and um, the Lord did not answer that prayer. Uh, um, amidst the warning and, and the particularly stern words of Jesus, um, though, is uh, I also think good news. And I, I also think, even though this is probably a passage easy to skip over, um, there is also an amazing and a wonderful invitation in it. And, and I hope that we see that this morning. I pray that we see that this morning. Let me take a moment just to pray, uh, to thank God for his, his word that is given to us and passed down to us. Uh, that we may just hear him speak to us this morning. Father, I thank you so much just for the privilege of having the revelation of your heart, as challenging as that may be sometimes, 
to have the revelation of your heart in the person of Jesus to us here this morning, 2,000 or so years later. And um, Lord, what a privilege it is just to come together as your people and to open the Bible and to, to hear what you might want to have to say to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to form my words in such a way that what I believe uh, you want to say to us this morning would be communicated and not just spoken. And uh, I, I just thank you for the privilege that it is to sit in this place as your people and to, um, to hear your heart for us, to hear your very word to us. And I pray that you'd open our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning, to be transformed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, having read that passage, let me ask you this. How many of, someone, how many of you have someone in your family who uh, is just a little bit strange? Put your hands up. Oh, if if you if you don't have your hand up, you may be the strange one. No, no. Um, what about uh, how many of you uh, have been embarrassed by a family member? I mean, I think that's given, considering we're all human beings. If there were more teenagers in the room, that'll be like, you know, yes, my my parents, of course. Um, if Jesus was my brother, blood uh, brother, I, I I would have thought that this would generally be a pretty neat thing. I mean, um, sure, it might be frustrating at times because he'd always be the perfect brother and you'd be getting grounded while he's uh, always doing the right thing, but he'd be so gracious and kind that it it wouldn't really matter and you'd just love him. It'd be cool to have Jesus as a brother. But we've just read that Jesus' family, they think he's lost his mind. And this is not just some random people going, oh, what's this Jesus guy? What's he up to? This is the people who know him best. This is his family. And they are embarrassed by him. They are concerned for him. They think he's lost his marbles. Now, even if this were true, even if he really had lost it, this would would be hard to take. Your own family coming to you and saying, mate, you lost it. You've, you've, You've just, you're on the wrong planet right now. The passage that we've read, um, it, it sits at the end of a section of Mark's Gospel, kind of an opening section, uh, which highlights what Jesus' ministry involved, and it also highlights the various responses to him. We've seen so far the positive response and the admiration and the desire to be around Jesus, all the amazing stuff that's happening, but also the critics and those who are questioning. And um, next week, we, we reach a chapter, uh, um, a section in chapter 4 where it, it shifts a little bit. Jesus does more storytelling, teaching, that kind of thing. Um, but this is kind of the end of a section about the, what the life of the ministry of Jesus looks like. It looked like. And, and this passage uh, that we read is what some call an, an interpolation, which is a storytelling technique, otherwise known as a sandwich, right? So basically, it starts with a particular thing that happened. There's the top part of the sandwich. That's the family interaction. Then it kind of puts on pause and has another interaction, which is the, Jew, the leaders from Jerusalem who rock up and criticize him, say he's possessed by a demon. And then it goes back again to the family interaction. So it's really about the family, but sandwiched in between is this thing with the Jerusalem leaders. Um, and the whole point of the story is, is really to paint a picture we we'll go to the next slide, of the distinction between those inside Jesus' inner circle. So like these people, they literally are in a circle around him at the end in the, in the passage. 
a distinction between them and those on the outside. Mark says that Jesus' family remain outside the house. It's a very visual thing that's happening, going, that's going on. And then the religious leaders have come from outside the local area, in the, unlike the Pharisees in the previous passages. So there's these insiders and outsiders. And to the Jewish uh, leaders, he basically says, you're outside the opportunity of God's forgiveness. And, and to his family, he says, you're, you're not my true family. Now, in a world where inclusivity is God, one can be forgiven for reading this and going, hang on a second, is this really an accurate depiction of Jesus and his heart and his attitude and his love? I mean, did Jesus just, like, did he have a brain snap and just go, how dare you call me demon-possessed? You can go to hell. Because he says, you know, you are, you are speaking and acting in a way that, just excludes you from forgiveness even. And to his family, is he just kind of going, if you think I'm crazy, well then you're not my family anymore. I mean, is is that what's going on? As I read this and sat with it, I'm kind of going, this is not really very easy to sit comfortably with. And, um, and these encounters in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, different Gospel writers, they sort of even soften the tone a little bit. Understandably. Um, and so I just had to sit with this passage for a really good amount of time on Monday this weekend and just kind of grasp what was Jesus' heart here? What's this? What's really going on? And a couple of things stood out. Um, the accusation of the Jewish leaders is even more harsh than the family. The family say, look, we think he's lost his mind a bit. The Jewish leaders say, he's possessed by Satan. Uh, he's demonic, and, and Jesus says, look, that's absurd. I mean, his understanding of, of Satan and evil is that, you know, Satan really either, well, really both represents all things evil and demonic and also his authority over that. So really he's saying, look, if you're saying I'm dealing with Satan, then Satan's shooting himself in the foot if he's casting out Satan. Uh, and then he uses this very powerful picture, and I'm, I'm going to read it again. In the middle of the the illustration, uh, as Mark calls it, he says this, Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. There's very little question that what Jesus is saying here is that the strong man in the story is the enemy, is Satan, and that the someone even stronger is Jesus himself. And so the strong man's goods, the things that he has in his house, that Jesus is plundering, the strong man's goods is those he has control over, those people whom he is afflicting and whom Jesus wants to free. This is an amazing image. An amazing picture that Jesus is coming to the house that Satan has dominion over, which is this world. He's tying him up, binding him to a post or something, and then releasing those who were trapped into a better place and a better reality. And and we know that the Jews wanted a strong Messiah, but they wanted a strong Messiah to overthrow the Romans. Jesus says, I've come as one stronger than, than the Romans, but then the prince of demons, then evil itself. And I've come to set free those who are enslaved by the evil one. What an amazing picture. This strength of Jesus to bind up evil 
and release people from it. And, and I read this and I, and I just was thinking, what difference would it make? What impact would it have if the way we were to join Jesus in the world, in his work in the world, what if we saw it like this, if we saw it as a rescue mission where Jesus is forcefully tying up the evil one, that which is perpetrating slavery and oppression, to lovingly release to safety those who are enslaved and oppressed. I want you to think for a second about literal rescue operations that happen in this world today. You might think of, uh, I mean, there's probably other things that come to mind other than these examples, but a few I thought of was a dedicated SWAT team at a, hostage, a terrorist hostage situation. Right, that's a rescue operation. Or maybe a justice organisation like IJM, International Justice Mission, fighting against uh, sex trafficking rings so that they can pull out women and children who are being enslaved. If you think about those situations or any other kind of rescue operation, what kind of uh, attitude do those rescue teams have? What kind of what kind of attitude and, and, and drive do they have in those rescue situations? Here's a few words I wrote down. Urgency, teamwork, passion, dedication, resources, risk, intelligence, and most of all, belief that it's worth doing because of the value of human life. Would that be a fair representation of, of a rescue operation? Of any kind, when someone is enslaved, that kind of passion is there. And this is why Jesus, in this passage that we've just read, is so passionate in this encounter, this interaction with his critics. Because he's, he's not just kind of you know, sharing a, a feel-good thing. He's, he's, he's freeing people from slavery to sin and to the demonic. Jesus and Paul and, and many other of the New Testament writers describe this war that, that's happening in the spiritual and it's between two kingdoms, which really means it's between two kings. And the one king is the strong man, Satan. And then the, on the other hand, the other king is, is, is the one who's plundering his house, the stronger king, Jesus. And he's doing it because those in that house enslaved are people who are loved by and belong to the Father. And, and so Jesus, Jesus, he doesn't just kind of have these Jerusalem religious leaders come along and they go, oh, you're casting out demons by the, demon, the king of demons himself. Jesus doesn't just go, oh, no, 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 it's okay, guys. Like, I'm really good guy. Like, I'm on your side. He's like... If you're going to get in my way of this rescue mission, you're fighting against the will of God, and for that you cannot be forgiven. It's like tense. <laughs> and trust me, I, I want to find a much nicer, feel-good, warm, fuzzy meaning in Jesus' words here, but it really is that forceful, and it needs to be that forceful. And, I, and as I was reading it and as I was reflecting on this, I realized it needs to be that forceful if we're to really believe that God's love is the love of a loving father. Because anything less for a father than single-minded, passionate, wholehearted, ruthless dedication to rescue his lost children is not really the love of a really loving father. 
That's why it's so forceful. Because Jesus says, these, these goods that the enemy has his hands on, they're my father's children. They are the people he loves. And so if you're going to get in my way, you better get out of the way. And I thank God as I read this and go, at first, oh my goodness, this is full on. But as I sit with it, I, I just I begin to thank God that as someone who was once lost, as someone myself who was once enslaved by the strong man because of my sin, I thank God that someone stronger, the person of Jesus, that he came relentlessly after me, bound up the enemy, and released me from his chains. Thank you, God, that you, as a loving father, would send Jesus to rescue me and so many of us in this room this morning. Something that I think that this story can teach us um, as followers of Jesus, and I also think there's, look, I'm getting to really good news in this as well, so bear with me. But something I think that this can teach us as, as followers of Jesus is the importance of identifying a common enemy. In the story, Jesus is basically saying, look guys, there's, there's one enemy here and there's one enemy only. It's not me, it's not the Romans, it's, it's evil. It's Satan himself. And so many of the problems uh, that we see in the church across the world um, and in the lives of Christian communities, often they arise because uh, we've lost sight sometimes of a common enemy. Instead, we, we fight one another. and we, we, Even in the, the human community, the community of this world, we fight one another. We pull others back because it's not the way we do it or it's not, not the right way. And, and we're threatened, especially in the church, by, by those who are different or unorthodox. Instead of asking, where is the Spirit of God at work in them? Where is, where is God at work in that community or that person and then just journeying alongside them to understand and support. I'm so grateful for when the church comes together. I love it when we come together on a Sunday, but, so, but when the church across Perth comes together in various ways, I'm so grateful for a community of pastors all across the city that I get to meet with every Wednesday. And I pray that we constantly look for opportunities to be on one another's same team than in competition with one another as the church. What would it be like if the church across the world, if in the church across the world, if every single one of its billions of members was so focused on joining with Jesus in binding the hands of its real enemy and releasing those under his stronghold into the hands of the Father? What would it be like? You know, you only have to go to a football game to see what kind of passion and unity a common enemy can bring. Right? Anyone an Eagles supporter? Yep. Oh, Andy, whoa. Anyone a Dockers supporter? All right, we're just not football supporters. That's fine. Um, I was at an Eagles game a few weeks ago, and 95% of the 50,000 people in Optus, in Optus Stadium are there in that stadium not to see the Eagles kick a ball around. You can go to their training session for that, and I guarantee you there's not 50,000 people at training. But they are there to see them defeat their opponent. They're united around a common opponent, a common enemy. And of course, the Eagles themselves, the 18 players out on the field, they are the most united and the most dedicated at the task of defeating their common enemy, much more than the dedicated spectators in the stand. 
Um, which brings me to then the top and the bottom of the sandwich of this passage, Jesus' family. This is really what it's all about. The, the rejection of the, Jew, the religious leaders who are kind of Jesus' critics, that's kind of all very well, but the, the, basically this is about Jesus' family and, his, and his, his response to them. They come and, as we've read, they, they come and say, look, we've come to re- really to rescue Jesus from himself. He's, he's lost his mind. Um, and, um, and, and he very bluntly says to them, my family isn't them, it's those who do the will of God. And considering the historical fact that members of Jesus' blood family, James and Mary, they were key players in the early church. They had an impact on history. They, they were godly, faithful people. In, uh, we know this from recorded history. Considering that, it's, it seems pretty surprising what Jesus would say here. They're not my family. My real family is those who do the will of God. But it serves to highlight this huge difference between observation and involvement. I, um, something on Facebook made me laugh recently. A, friend, a Facebook friend uh, put up a post um, following being at a football game again, and um, they said, I was at the Tigers game. Now, they're a Richmond Tigers supporter. And, um, and an athletic, strong, experienced Richmond midfielder dropped one chess mark. And me, half drunk on the fourth level, never played one professional sport in my life, voice muffled through mouthfuls of hot chips, says, what do you think you're doing? Isn't that the distinction between an observer and somebody in the game? There's a vast difference between the active participant in the contest and the, the passive observer in the stands. And whilst Jesus' family, they obviously have a genuine concern for him. It's not from an active involvement. It's from a passive observation that they've heard from back where they live that, this, that they're, they're, one of their family is doing all this stuff and they miss it. They, don't, they, they, they simply don't understand what they're observing. And notice this. this. This really stood out to me in the passage. That they think he's lost his mind. His family think he's lost his mind, while others, dozens of others, are in the room, crowded around Jesus, to learn, to observe, to be teachable, and to engage actively in his work. They don't think he's lost his mind because they're there engaged, active in the ministry of Jesus with him. Just observing from afar and hearing secondhand what it's all about means they, his family, his blood family, they miss it. They don't get it. And so only active involvement is enough. So much so that Jesus once again makes this, this separation, this bold statement He says you're in or you're out, and blood relationship doesn't matter. Doing the will of God is the only thing here. Now, all of this, I find it incredibly challenging, and very this very uninclusive Jesus who seems to have his inner circle, literally the people who are gathered around him in a circle, and then leaders from the temple and his family, they are painted in the story as outsiders outside the house, outside the possibility of forgiveness, have come from outside. It all seems very exclusive. So where does that leave us? Well, the beauty in all of this is that to be an insider, to be in the inner circle, to be in the family, it doesn't require status. It doesn't require privilege. 
It doesn't require having been born at the right time or in the right place or into the right family or into the right country or setting. To be an insider is actually open to everyone. It's almost a paradox. To be an insider only actually requires something that everyone can be a part of, that everyone can do, simply what God wants. It's not restricted to those people or those, that family or people with that special connection or that special privilege. It's open to all. Do you, I want you to see the brilliance of this this morning and the, the beauty in this, that the passage is sort of to seem at first like Jesus is saying, you're out and you're out, and yet his invitation to be in the family of God is offered not to a select group, not to special people who have the right blood or the right connections. And in fact, if you think you're in the family of Jesus because you have the right connections and because you have the right privilege, chances are it's bad news. But the family of God, the opportunity to be in Jesus' circle is open to all. And we can find ourselves sometimes in conflict with Jesus in various ways when we get in the way of that. We know that the work of the Holy Spirit is unpredictable. We know the work of, the, of God in this world is passionate and sometimes deeply uncomfortable. To, to, and, and our human tendency is to observe what God is doing in someone's life and sometimes to not understand it and say they seem to have lost their mind. And, but I love what this passage says about the people who Jesus calls his family those who are doing his will. I don't know if we can just get that part of the story back up, um, uh, Doug, to see it. Sorry, I, I didn't put this on the screen. But what are those in Jesus' family doing? They're sitting around Jesus. They're with him, open, learning, ready to receive, willing to be teachable. There it is. Those around him, he looked at them and said, these are my mother and brothers and sister. You know, I pray that we are a family of followers of Jesus who are like that, that when we come together, that we're so eager to learn, we're so eager to listen to our leader and saviour Jesus, that you know, there's nowhere we'd rather be than in the presence of Jesus because we know that he knows best. We, we don't consider ourselves like family who have a privilege or leaders from the Jerusalem who have a privilege thinking we know best, but we humble ourselves and we do it regularly. Now, if we truly believe in the gathering of the saints, the preaching of the word, the sharing at the table, the prayers and worship of the body of Christ, that in those settings, Jesus himself is here, that he is here now, then we ought to be together and eager and listening in close every chance we get. And before we shift into a new part of Mark's gospel next week, which is where we begin to hear some of those, that storytelling and that teaching that Jesus himself taught, parables and things like that, I want to be sure that we are positioning ourselves as his people at his feet, around him in his presence, going, what do you have to show us, Jesus? We all have our own walk with Jesus, and some of you are just going for it right now. You're taking ground. You're out there in the world, leaving Jesus everywhere you go. And I want to commend you and say, go for it. The Holy Spirit is alive in you. Do it. But sometimes, and this is the way I'm feeling at the moment, sometimes we're in a season or a place where 
I'm, I'm just convinced that any fruitful, Holy Spirit-driven work comes out of a place of being positioned at the feet of Jesus. In fact, I think that no matter whether we're in a, 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 an excellent, fruitful season where we're just seeing a lot of great stuff happen or whether we're just feeling like we need to pull back and be refreshed, in any season, being at the feet of Jesus, teachable, humble, willing to learn, is so important. It's why you know, I've, I've just felt as if, um, and I can't shake the thought that the most important room in this facility is our prayer room. If you haven't been to the prayer room before, it's just at the opposite end in the, in the admin area. You know, we didn't make it a prayer room because we didn't have any other use for it, <laughs> but because we had a, a desire that it would be what Pete Gregg from 24-7 Prayer calls a thin place, where the veil between heaven and earth is just that little bit more thin, where we can encounter God as a prayed-in place, a place for our hearts to, to be quiet, to be still, because that is the will of God. And what I want to finish today with is just this, I guess, a thought that has been sitting on my mind recently, and that is that we don't spend time at the feet of Jesus. We don't spend time in the presence of God. We don't spend time, even here on a Sunday morning, because it's just a means to get us to the place where we're fruitful. We, we, don't, we don't have a relationship with God just so we have enough strength to do good things for him. We have a relationship with God because that is his will. That being in relationship with the Father is his will. That is what Jesus says the will of God is. And that is who his family is. And, and I was reminded of this so beautifully last night when Karen and I, we went to see, as I mentioned, the Watoto Children's Choir from Uganda. Most of the kids orphaned, often abandoned by their parents. And one of the girls, she stood up before one of the songs and she said, I'm six years old. She said, my name is so-and-so, I forget what her name was. But I, I'm six years old. I, I was left at the orphanage by my mother. I used to have a fear of being abandoned. But then Jesus came into my life and he gave me freedom. And now I am his child. It was, it was this moment that was so simple, so not filled with anything particularly theologically deep or anything like that, but so profound. And then just after she shared this, the, the choir stood up and they sung this song. I took a little clip of it so I could play it for you this morning. God, I just thank you so much for the reminder that you have made 
the access to your family open to all of us. That to be a child of God is not something that requires privilege or status or special connections or uh, anything like that, but that you have simply said that you just want us to sit at your feet, to be near to you, to be with you, to journey with you, to walk alongside you. And we need nothing special. We need nothing uh, in terms of special knowledge or understanding. All we need, Lord, is a heart that says, you know what, Jesus, we want to be with you. We want to be part of your family. And the more we get to know you, Jesus, the more we realize how much of a privilege that is, the more we realize how amazing it is to be called a child of God our Father and to call you Heavenly Father and to be able to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. But then to simply pray for the basic things that we need because you love us as our Heavenly Father. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who, separate, who sin against us. And save us from the times of trial. Deliver us from the evil one. What a privilege it is, Lord, to be your children. As we leave this space Today, we pray that uh, that reality of being in Christ, of being a child of the Father, having our identity in you would sink in more and more, and that we would realize that you have made, in, in this paradoxical kind of way, you have made your inner circle, your family, open to us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's just uh, respond in.